Hey, it's Liz Kelly, and welcome to The Ringer Podcast Network. The Ringer is launching a new podcast from the guys who brought you Cespedes Family Barbecue called Baseball Barbecue. Hosted by Jake Mintz and Jordan Schusterman, they're bringing you the good, the bad, and the utterly bizarre corners of the baseball world and everything that makes it special. Throughout the offseason, they'll dive into the rabbit hole on some of their favorite fascinations from the home run derby to baseball brawls and much more. Once the season returns, they'll break down the latest MLB news and developments. You can subscribe to Baseball Barbecue on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome into Winging It, part of the Ringer Podcast Network. I'm your host, Annie Finberg, as always, joined by Mr. Vince Carter. BC's in the house. And we are joined by, I'm so excited to tell you guys this, Emmy Award winning, and Vince, don't take this personally, but my favorite male broadcaster, Ernie Johnson. Wow. I don't know how, don't to, I don't know how to take that. <laughs> aside from, I'm flattered beyond words. Great to see you all tonight. Great to see yes, you. Thank we're, you very we're much. We're so glad to have you here. Like I said, my favorite male broadcaster, so we had to make sure to get you on. I know that there's been an introduction between us. Annie, your standards must be really low. (laughs) (laughs) No, but seriously, I think you do a really great job, and I've loved watching you for as long as I can remember, especially with Shaq and those guys. I think it's what you do is no easy task. It's a lot of fun, that's for sure. (laughs) You know, what was cool is uh, like three hours ago, we had... uh, like a round table, anybody, all the announcers could be on. And so we had, a you know, 30 to 40 people on there, some production folks and Charles and C Webb and Isaiah Thomas and D Wade. It was really great. And, you know, it's kind of gotten to the point now where even seeing folks just like this just means the world. It just, it's just kind of, it's just kind of very cool, even though we're, you know, we all want to return to things the way they were, but uh, we'll see. We'll see when that happens. You mentioned you're doing some stuff with the guys over there. You're also doing NBA Together, which is on NBA Twitter, and you've had a lot of really awesome guests doing that. Your journalism school on your Twitter. How have you been managing all this? And is there anything else going on that we don't know about yet? No, that's kind of it. But I think you guys can relate. You know, when this hit, all of a sudden you were kind of like looking at each other and saying, Okay, what do we do now? And and uh, right. and so the first thing I did was said to myself, you know, I'm just going to get on Twitter and, and look. I'm not the most technological savvy person in the world, so I was just going to get on Twitter and type in, "Hey, anybody want to talk?" And I'll ask you know answer some questions. <laughs> and, and I talked to my uh, our social team, and they said, you know, you could do a Twitter live. And, and you could be on there and, and they'll throw questions that'll, that'll appear on the screen. And what I've always liked is, uh, you know, when I go back to my journalism school days, Annie, this is when, um, this was 19, like 78 when I graduated. So before you start thinking it was 1878, it was 1978 <laughs> graduated. When I was in J school, the thing I liked the most was when my professors would bring in people who were in the business. And we could just throw questions out, you know, and say, you know, so what's it like when you do this? Do you get nervous when you do this? And so I decided to kind of tailor these conversations to journalism students who had kind of had the the year swept out from under them in the spring semester. 
And, and I just kind of went through my phone and said, oh, let me let me get Brian Anderson to commit to an hour. Let me get Seth Davis to commit to an hour. James Brown, Scott Van Pelt, on and on. So through six weeks, uh, it ran six weeks, and we had 35 different people who were in the business taking questions from journalism students, uh, basically from two to three Eastern time every day. And it was just very cool. And for me, it was like, I would listen to these sessions and I'd say, wow, Brian Anderson does that, thinks that what he's doing play by play on baseball. I'm going to try that. And it was amazing that when you've been in the business for 30 or 40 years, 30 at Turner, and you kind of think, you know, nobody's going to throw anything at me that I don't know. You're saying, wow, that's a pretty good tip. So if I was getting that, I know journalism students were too. I've always said that, you know, they asked me, uh, you know, because I've been in the league so long, young guys, and, and and I still ask questions and I'm still curious about situations. You know, I mean, guys, you, you, you know, like you said, you've been around so long, you tend to think your way, which is considered old school way. And then there's the new school way or how guys see it now. So it's, it's kind of interesting to kind of hear like our younger coaching staff uh, or younger coaches and, you know, try to implement into day to day approach the whole nine. So it's, it's cool hearing you say that as well. No, and Vince, do you realize what a, a tremendous influence you are? I mean, you know, I was talking to, we had Trey Young the other day on our uh, uh, NBA together uh, series, which has also been cool to do because, you know, the folks at Turner said, hey, would you be interested in being the guy who interviews these folks, you know, twice a week uh, on NBA together? And, you know, we've been going 35, 45 minutes with these guys. Vince, it's obvious. I mean, it's like for a guy like Trey, who was, who wasn't born when you were drafted. It's like, you know, it's like sitting at the feet of the master. You know, you don't want to ask a bunch of questions. You just want to soak in the knowledge. And you provide that for, you provide that for young players. And I'm, and I'm sure that your message is out there. Even when you, when you're not sure that you're really delivering a message, it's being received by young players in the league who see, what you can do at the age of 73. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) And that's what, I think that's what amazes them the most. It's like, how can you do that at at that age? (laughs) Thank you very much. I've had great conversations with a lot of young guys. Trey sits by me in the locker room uh, and practice facility in the arena and, and a lot of times on the road. So it's, it's, it's for me, it's a great situation because seeing him go through ups and downs, great moments in, in, in understanding how to handle those great moments. I'm able to sit back and say, I'm, I, I've been there and I can tell you exactly how to handle it and, you know, and, and incorporate that into his day. day, yeah, day. And, and I, look, I know you guys are asking me questions, but I want to ask you, I mean, so are, are you volunteering a lot of this information or is it all because somebody asks you a question? It's a little bit of both. I enjoy when those guys come and ask questions. I, you know, day one, when I walked into the facility with the, with the rookies, I, I, I introduced myself and, and let them know I'm, um, I'm an open, I'm an open door. You, you can come talk to me at any point in time, uh, whatever the situation is. So it sometimes I've, I've learned, uh, I, I make it my business to learn the young guys. I've learned Trey and I, I know when he's not going to retain what I'm saying and, and when he's you know willing to hear, you know, cause it's just situational and, and, and I'm making my business to do, to, to know that. So, you know, we build a, a relationship for situations down the line and big games and whatnot. So it's, it, it's, it's kind of, it's, it's 50, 50 both ways. I mean, I'll, I'll come up to a guy and just, 
um, just throw some words out there and, you know, sometimes they don't like, okay, I got you that you just, it's just there, but I know you heard me. And right. later on he was like, no, I heard you. I heard you. And, and, you know, you tend to understand these things and, and, and it's worked and it's, it's been fun for me. Yeah. I was going to get to this later, but since we're on the topic, we might as well stay talking about Vince. Um, Ernie, I wanted to ask you, you've obviously been doing this for a while since Vince has been in the league. Since he's 73, we don't want to do the math, but you know when that was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah let's not do that. <laughs> but I wanted to know your first, or if you remember, or your favorite Vince Carter memory, like when you you know saw him coming into the league, maybe? I remember Kenny Smith and I doing the studio together before Chuck got there, and Kenny breaking out the half-man, half-amazing uh, when when we saw Vince doing his thing. And it, and it was an amazing thing to watch. But I think... I think the thing about Vince that always uh, resonated with me was the whole graduation story and, and the importance to him of, of being there to, to walk and knowing how important that was to his family. And then, you know, watching kind of with amazement, all the reaction to that, you know, and all the people would say, how, how can you possibly do that to your team? And how could you leave? And it's like, Look, it wasn't like they were running simultaneously. Vince had, you know, there was ample time for Vince to get back, but there was also ample time for Vince to fulfill a family obligation and to make a mom proud. And it's like, this was the perfect decision. And if, and if, and if a shot goes down, nobody's talking about it. It becomes, it, it, it moves from, well, this is the greatest story of all time. This is a Disney movie to, oh, how could he do that? And, and it's just so silly. So, so that's the way I've always felt about that. And it's not just that I'm sitting here talking to you right now, Vince, but, you know, there are things in the world that are more important than basketball. But when you can, when you can fulfill your basketball obligation and at the same time fulfill the family obligation. For sure. It was one of the best moments. I mean, it was stressful uh, just hearing that. And, you know, you know with, you know, uh, the one thing I think that was somewhat disappointing is, you know, the NBA always talks about, you know, uh, we had the campaign of read to achieve and, mm -hmm. and, and the importance of education and all of these different things. Well, here's an athlete who is a, uh, a go-to guy on, on a basketball team who's doing something that you talk about year after year after year, showing the importance of education while being an athlete, a professional athlete with money to, to, to do whatever it is you really want to, but you, you've, you've made a dedication to, um, academics and still was able to fulfill, uh, both obligations. But, you know, it's like I said, I would do it again if, if, if need be. And if the situation called for it again, what, without a shadow of a doubt. And, you know, every time I walk in my front door, which is not often, but, uh, every time I walk through the front door, I have, uh, that diploma sitting right there, uh, at the front door blown up. Yeah. Um, just so I can remember not only that day, but you know, that's a, that's an accomplishment. And a lot of those people who, who had something to say, I can almost guarantee they walked across the stage to receive their diploma on their special day as well. Right. Hey, the other thing about Vince, when, when I think about his career, obviously is that 2000 dunk contest and there will never be one <laughs> that good. I mean, I mean, you'll, you'll see competition that maybe. You know, you've seen the last you know few times with you know when Aaron Gordon's involved and mm -hmm. being tremendous. But that year in 2000, and the thing that you appreciated the most is that okay, I'm going to try this and I'm going to make it, and then it's your turn. And it's not like okay, look, I'm the 18th try. 
I'm going to nail this. No, this was like, this was like Vince doing his thing and the competition. I mean, the Steve Francis and Tracy McGrady competition was tremendous that, but I've never heard an arena go crazy like that in an all-star weekend. That was like a playoff game. The place simply exploded when, when Vince was making these dunks and it was, and it was like there, you know, an NBA championship was decided. It was, it was that good that weekend. I mean, that's, it'll never be tough, man. It was insane, you know, and it's hard to compare many like that. I mean, I, the only thing, like the feeling and, and, and the adrenaline that uh, when I walked out there prior to the competition starting, so we're in the layup line warming up and just to see, and the, you can feel the buzz. It was just took me to another level. No, oh, it was, it was amazing. Half man, half amazing. <laughs> So you'd mentioned playoffs, Ernie. I unfortunately was not watching this dunk contest live. I've seen it many times in my days. But hey, you weren't even born, were you? I was born, yes. Okay. I was I was nine or maybe okay. eight at the time. So I was not watching basketball, unfortunately. I was watching more like dance and cheerleading videos at that time, I think. But <laughs> <laughs> what's something comparable to this? Because obviously today's day, you know, we everyone gets hyped. It gets excited about the dunk contest, but it's nothing like what I would say a playoff atmosphere is like. No, because because it's not what it used to be. You know, when you when you think about sometimes when you look at the fields for the dunk contest these days, it's like you know sometimes it's a virtual who's he of of, uh, of dunking ability, not a who's who. Um, but for years it was a who's who, and for years it was I'm gonna yeah, I'm gonna do this, and 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 guys weren't that concerned with well this is just gonna label me as a dunker. No, it's not. It's going to make you a household name, dude. Win this thing mm-hmm. and nobody's going to forget you. Uh, and hey, so, I, I agree with that. Yeah. I mean, it's like, it's like this, this misconception. And, and I think that, um, I think the greatest names in the history of the game have taken part in it. And if you don't want to be in part of that, then uh, I don't understand it. I, I really don't. Yeah. And I think, and I think as a result that, the contest has suffered through the years. Every now and then you do get some pretty good contests, but it's, you know, it's not like you get the names there that get eyeballs on the set at four o'clock that mm-hmm. afternoon saying, Oh, I can't wait till this happens. Yeah. Back into what's going on right now. We are in the middle of a pandemic. No one really knows what's going on, but Ernie, I wanted to ask you because I know you were on CNN. You're more plugged in maybe to the NBA than myself. I was going to say and Vince, but I don't want to speak for him. You know, Adam Silver said he'll be making a decision in two to four weeks. But have you heard anything? Where do you think the NBA is going? Andy, be real. He'll be making a decision in four weeks. The longer they can wait, the better for them. (laughs) We know that. (laughs) Good point, too, Vince. The more time that you have, because because the situation is so fluid. Uh, Look, I go back to uh, the night after play was stopped. Okay, so we're talking March 12th, that Thursday night, March 12th. And uh, so there are no games, but we're still going to do a show, you know, because everything had been had been suspended on the 11th. And we're going to do an hour long show at eight o'clock. No doubleheader to follow. Shaq's with me. Kenny's with me. Charles joins us from his hotel room because he's just been tested for coronavirus. And so we don't know what the deal is there. But I know in doing and looking at the numbers as I got ready for this for that show. And we're going to have Adam Silver on at the top of the show to, to give us the latest. There would have been 40 deaths in the United States on March 12th. And now what are we, 85,000? And it's almost impossible to, to even comprehend that. 
say there have been 40 people in the United States that died of, of COVID-19. And so as Adam talked to us that night, he was like, well, look, this is it's March 12th. And we're not doing anything. We're not saying anything really until April at the earliest. And then April comes and goes. And now we're May. And it's how many of those burning questions have been answered? Not many. You know, how many of those questions we had on March 12th have had definitive answers at this point? Not many. And so while it's encouraging from time to time to hear, okay, the board of governors met and they're pretty upbeat and, you know, something like that. Do they know something we don't know? Do they know something that the American public doesn't know about the safety that can be ensured when and if play resumes, that kind of thing. You know, it's funny because I was talking to Charles today. We have a podcast. It's called The Steam Room and it's available wherever you get your podcast. (laughs) That was Um, a great plug. Okay. Thank you. Well done. I, I thought it was rather <laughs> seamless, but it was. Of course that, that's, that's the way I that's the way I view it. But we were talking about the same thing, and I said, Chuck, if, if you were playing right now, would you be up for returning to play right now, or what kind of assurances do you need? And he's like, I don't know if right now I could say, yeah, I'm ready to go back and play. You know, he was, he was saying, I need I need an assurance about where we're staying, about hotel staff, about this or that, or if, and if someone tests positive, there are just so many of those questions still out there. And, but, and Vince, you're a current player. So you, and obviously your team is playing out the string. If you're going to finish out the regular season. Okay. You know, you don't have to worry about, okay, how are we going to do the playoffs? But, I, but, but you're looking at that same question right now. And it's like, what do you need to hear Vince to say, sure, I'm in. And that's the, that's the one, that's the crazy thing about it. Cause we had a conversation about it today. And it's just so many what ifs that need to be answered. It's not a few. It's a lot of what ifs. And you hit a lot of the major ones on the head right there. But it's so many what ifs, you know, the staff and, you know, does everyone need to be quarantined uh, when you talk about different locations? You're talking about, you know, you, I hear people all the time. It's like, yeah, I hear you might go to the Bahamas. I hear you might go to Toronto and uh, all of these different Orlando was a uh, wide world of sports. So I said, OK, th- let's think about this. You're talking about 30 teams with 15 to 17 players plus staff, and you're trying to put them in hotels. You have to quarantine the bus drivers, everybody who works in the hotel. Everybody has to stay in this bubble. And that's a lot of people. So you have a lot of questions and you have to figure all of these things out. And how many people are willing to be away from their families that long or, you know, whatever the case may be. So uh, just as of right now, it's kind of just like. We need to be a little more educated on what's going on. I mean, like right now, you feel comfortable knowing a little bit about it. But when you talk about now playing, it's a hard call, man. It's a it's a it's a hard call. Absolutely. Even though you want to play. I mean, this is what you do, Vince. This is what you've done your whole life. This is what you of course you want to play. But at what at what but we want to do it the right way. Yeah. Of those people you mentioned, Vince, I'm surprised still that there's the people who don't think it's that serious, who would be the outliers of the people leaving the campus or not in quarantine when they say they are quarantined. Because I I still run in with people like on social media who are having parties and stuff like that. And you have to imagine there's a few of those within the NBA sphere of some kind. Of course. Just think of the, the, the amount of young guys in the NBA like who are right now. So we're fortunate to have family like for even for yourself. And well, you I mean, you have somebody. Uh, but that that you, that you you share a uh, apartment with, but just think about these young guys who are young in the NBA, living in an apartment 
by themselves. So it's just like, I have family, I have friends that whatever, but they have friends, but it's like, at some point you just got, I, I got to get outside. I have to be young, wild and free, you know? So you have to think about all of these things. And now you're talking about trying to keep a hold of thousands of people to keep everyone safe, to play basketball. And, you know, it's just, it's just a lot. It's just a lot that it's a lot of things that have to happen and it has to be seamless. It has to be perfect because if you have one mishap, everything's blown up. I know this is a hard question, but Ernie, if you had to make a decision, Adam Silver wanted to know what you thought the league should do. What, what would be your recommendation? No, I mean, I've, I've said from day one and I, and I said to Adam in our interview, in fact, probably in both times that we talked to him, I, I, I talked to him on that night that after the play was suspended and I talked to him on the first episode of that NBA together. And I said, you bet, you know, in my mind, you just got to be sure. You know, in my mind, you have to say, we have every eventuality covered. If this happens, then this happens. If this happens, then this happens. Now, and if, and if one of those, if one of those is, well, if this team has somebody test positive, then, then they have to quarantine and they're a playoff team. Then you know, look, you can't do that. And, and, and so to me, I've been covering this league for 30 years and I love the game and I love playoff time. But I also know that, look, if we don't have a champion this year, it's not the worst thing in the world that could happen. And so that's the way, I mean, I would love to go back to work. I'd love to be back hanging with my guys and talking about the NBA and seeing who's going to make the playoffs and then see how we're going to get this carried off. But, man, you just got to be smart. And I, so I think the league is, I think the league has been very proactive in doing that. I think they've been throwing a lot of ideas out there and seeing what sticks, you know. How about Orlando? How about Vegas? How about this? You know, just to see, because, because if you just sit here and say, well, we're not going to do anything until somebody says it's okay, then you're way behind. So you have to look at eventualities, but, and then, and then you throw into that whole thing. Also the economic part, it's a very tough time to be the guy who's making that decision. And I'm glad it's not. Absolutely. Yep. In, in your 30 years of covering the league, have you seen anything remotely close to this? I mean, and, I just can't imagine. I mean, we have that we have the lockouts and you've been through a, a few lockouts, but anything like this. Vince, in 63 years on this earth, I've never seen anything like this. <laughs> I'm serious. I mean, this is like nobody knew what to do. There's there's not a spalding guide that says, okay, in case of a pandemic, here's what we're gonna do, and everybody pay attention. Nobody knew what to do with this. And so uh in terms of NBA, obviously not. And sure, you've seen some you know, lockouts and, you know, okay, here's a 66 game year, here's a 50 and that kind of thing. Um, but in terms of something like this, that has just impacted the entire world and your neighbors, you know, it's not, it, it's like, it's, it's like a movie that you don't want to see again. And so we just, you know, we're just trying to do what we're supposed to do. You know, we're, we're trying to obey what we're supposed to be, you know, here, here are the rules and stay on top of it. But, no, it's tough not to see your grandkids. It's tough not to see your mom. It's tough not to hug folks, you know? And, and I, I can say this, I've been inconvenienced through this. Okay. In all honesty, I still have a job, still got dinner on the table. Everybody's healthy. There are people out there who have lost everything. They've lost loved ones. They've lost jobs. They've lost income. They've lost, you know, they're finding themselves in food lines. I'm never going to compare what, what I've been through to what how serious it's been for for so many people and i said you know, i was having a conversation with some friends and i was like this has a 
a Y2K scare. You remember leading up to Y2K? It was like the unknown. Like, oh man, what's going to happen tomorrow? Like, what? Like tomorrow, will I still be alive? Or you know, whatever. And I felt like it has that same type of feeling and scare to it. But obviously, on a on a broader scale, on a more massive scale. And, and you know what? In the in the one of the toughest parts about it, Vince and Annie, is that is the uncertainty. Look, if Dr. Fauci came out and said, "Hang in there, guys." August 17th, it disappears and everything's back to normal. Then you could batten down the hatches and say, okay, here's what we have to do until August 17th. But nobody knows. Nobody knows how long it's going to go. Nobody knows if it's going to return with a vengeance. Nobody knows these things. And that's that's the hard part about it is the uncertainty and the unknown. And I, I was telling somebody the other day, I said, look, you know, I've been in a doctor's office when they said they thought something was cancer and we'll let you know the next day. It's not the fear of cancer. It's the uncertainty that gets you. You wait for that phone call. And once they tell you, okay, it is. And here's what we're going to do about it. Then you put your head down and you fight. But if they, if they called you and said, still don't know, we'll get back to you in a few months, man, that uncertainty just would just wreck you. And so, so once you know, once you know when you can do something about it, you go. But we're in that uncertain position. We don't know how long. We don't know how bad. And while everybody wants to return to some kind of normal, you're just trying to weigh, is it worth it? So much uncertainty. And especially, you know, for Vince, because we we knew what the future looked like. You know, we had, what was it, 16 games left. This was going to be his last game. We are going to Toronto soon. That was when, you know, it was all going to kind of come together. And then all of a sudden, we're not really sure where that's going. So hopefully we will have something. Um, I'm sure we will do something. But we don't know when that will be. A virtual five game. years, Vince. <laughs> how, many, how many? Five. Play five. Uh, that's asking a lot. Come back and play another year. <laughs> have you tossed that no, around? Let me stop. Have no, I haven't. I haven't. I, I think, you know, and, and EJ, I, I'll tell you this, man, I, 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 going into the last game, you know, going back to March 11th, a lot of satisfaction happened internally when that ball went in, which could have possibly been the last time. That three-pointer. Yes. And and I felt like in the situation that was just on, on us an hour and a half ago, this can be a nice ending for, for me personally. I know everybody else is looking at it a little different, but if that shot doesn't go down... Now I'm I'm thinking maybe maybe next year because you don't want to end on a miss you don't want to end it's already bad enough it's ending like this you don't yeah. want to end on a miss you know but uh, you know I'm, I'm I'm at peace right now so it's kind of easier to kind of move on to to phase two you know to, of what I want to do in my life so but if they say hey the season's back it'll be a pleasant surprise and I'm all for it but then you replace that Atlanta crowd going nuts when you hit that three to an empty gym playing somebody down the stretch and it's like how's that how empty might that feel yeah you, you you're waiting for the home crowd to start chanting defense yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you, know, you hear nothing <laughs> you know you like come on give me oh never mind nobody's there yeah, no doubt. Yeah, wave your hands get, get this crowd. yeah they're like uh now, and now you do that you look crazy you're like uh so what is he doing <laughs> is this a defensive signal <laughs> yeah, exactly. 
And I'm curious, Vince, actually, I know we've discussed this briefly, but there was a UFC fight where they had that without fans and they've been doing WWE Mm -hmm. without fans. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you've caught either of those, but what would it be like for you for the first time in 500 years to play basketball in front of nobody? Well, there were times in in AAU uh, when you didn't win and you had to play that nine, 10 o'clock game. When there were there there weren't that many people there, but if you win, you tend to get back into the the winner's bracket. So we've as player, we've been through it. It's just this is not what we're accustomed to. You think of basketball, you think of sports, you think of competition, and you think of viewers, you think of a crowd, uh, the excitement of it. So it's it's tough to kind of put yourself in it. But if there were a game tomorrow and there weren't any fans, I'm I'm down. I'm down for it. It's it's an adjustment period and period. And I think there's a lot of players in, in our league who will struggle with that because they they fuel off of the energy of fans home and away. Uh, but at the same time, I think this is an opportunity to take it back old school when you focus on the task at hand and, and the, the, the job at hand and, and that defender in front of you. And, and, and so I just I think it'll help players appreciate and lock into the game a little more, but, you know, but as far as the entertainment side, you know, you lose that part of it. But when it's, when it's coming time, you have to win a game for a playoff spot, a playoff berth. Guess what you're going to focus on? Not how many people's in the building. If they're watching on TV, one of these fanless games, Mm -hmm. what are they hearing that they don't normally hear on a telecast? Everything. (laughs) (laughs) Everything and and I and and that's that's, that's one of the things I, I, I said. Uh, you know, they're about they want to give you more angles, the exclusive sounds, some uh, the the uh, ISO cams, and I'm like, uh, I don't know if I you want to do want that. that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, yeah, you give you give the fans that experience that you know only courtside, the big money people get the that pay to 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 hear night in and night out, but. Uh, I don't know if if you want if you want to hear that. And here's a question, and I want, I'm curious to see what you guys think about this. We go fanless. Do you consider pumping in fan crowd noise to kind of help that? Do you do that or no? <laughs> Big no for me. Can't be that bogus. Because if you're going to do that, then you better have a bunch of booze ready too when somebody blows a whistle. <laughs> You know? Right, right, right. Uh, so right. Uh, I don't think you can do that. I think you just got to play it out, and it's just like. It'll be like training camp for you. It's going to be like a scrimmage. But you'll also probably, there'll probably be some players on there who get picked on who are like, man, I've never heard my And you hear I, it all. Yeah, I've never heard my name called that often. Like, go at him. You know, that might that might be a little painful. That's very true because it's, drown, it's drowned out by crowd noise. And, and now, uh, I mean, fans get a chance to hear all of the, or, or see and experience the nuances of the game internally. You know, when we, we use the terminology, use your voice. And you want to hear your voices defensively. And the way we articulate some things in the game is not usually straightforward. You know, just, hey, get back. Watch your back. Look out. It doesn't, it, so now, you're like, when this microphone is here, they, it's going to pick up everything. Yeah, it's just something to think about. Hopefully it might happen. Oh, yeah. You never know. I'll be interested to see it. Um, I want to get back to you, Ernie. You mean and talk- hear it. Yeah, here yeah, it is. Here it. Well, you know, we we hear the occasional f bombs come through that you know that right. that mic that's above the above the rim. But when they turn it on, now it's always on from a lot of angles, so it's no dodging it. But when you're mic'd up, there has to be someone approving or not approving the sound that's coming through. So you'd have to think they're going to have to put it on like 
I don't know, maybe Kyle, Kyle Corver or someone like that who... You're still going to hear it. I oh, That's true. I guess the people guarding him and stuff. But I don't know, like, who's safe? But how about this? And then you get into the next thing. So now are you going to... Uh, is the, Will the NBA games be a little delayed so you can edit it? Or are you going to do live? Because I think that plays a factor in it, too. Because if you're so worried about what they say, okay, let's, let's delay it a few seconds so we can kind of edit, try to... No, you, you know, you're just going to have to run that disclaimer like they like they do before. Oh, for sure. <laughs> it just says, "Hey, the following the following couple hours contains a lot of this stuff." <laughs> the following couple hours. <laughs> yeah. You go pick up Carmelo saying, "I got the rebound." <laughs> if you would. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I want to know from you. So you wrote a book, your autobiography called Unscripted. Um, you talked a lot about your life and where you're at today. And I want to talk to you about your son that you adopted from Romania. And, you know, you have a full-time job. You have six children and a wife. I read how it transpired. But for you just today, what that's like, especially with the coronavirus, I can imagine it's even tougher. It is an area of concern for us on a daily basis for me and Cheryl. Michael is 31 now. And look, yeah, we have six kids. They're all unbelievable. I mean, Eric and Maggie and Carmen and Michael and Ashley and Allison, and we've adopted four out of the six and and have four grandkids too. And that's beyond awesome. For Michael's situation with muscular dystrophy, he's already exceeded all of our expectations and a lot of doctors' expectations because a lot of kids who have Duchenne muscular dystrophy, a condition in which the muscles deteriorate, uh, they don't get out of their teens. And... Um, and he's 31 now, uh, had a real tough time with pneumonia nine years ago, and uh, we almost lost him, and they put him on a ventilator. So he's been on a ventilator. We hear about every night on the news, you talk about ventilators and that kind of thing. He's been on one for nine years and, um, and is very susceptible to lung infections and that kind of thing. And so we have been very careful about where we go and who we see and wearing a mask and wearing gloves and that kind of thing. Because the last thing you want to do is bring back into the house anything that's going to make him sick. And he's been dealing with a lung infection, which isn't COVID, a lung infection recently that is, is resistant to all oral drugs. And his pulmonologist said, I don't want you coming into a hospital to get a pick line put in where we can do IV treatments. He said, because I don't want him to come into a hospital into that setting. So you know, he has, a, he has two overnight nurses. They put an IV line in here. We've been giving him IVs for the last three weeks, and, and it's knocked out his fever. So we've it's like that's, that's a win for us. But um, it's hard. You know, it's like it puts a real face on it. And we've seen how difficult it is when somebody has breathing trouble and, and that kind of thing. And we've done very well at this point. And Michael is is doing as well as, as he can do. And um, he and the rest of the kids remain an incredible blessing to us, man. It's like, uh, you know, we adopted this kid from Romania when he was three years old. And for him to be 31 years old, man, I wake up and see a miracle every morning. And he's a sharp kid. I got the opportunity to meet him. And I, I know it was pretty cool uh, when you? you asked him about his love. Yeah, I did. Uh at the during the Black Masters, uh, you know, Ernie invited us over and we sat around and talked to him. And he's sharp and uh, his love for cars. Uh, I was impressed uh, how he remembered Chuck's car from like two or three years prior. Oh, yeah. Here's the deal. He, he almost like, you know, there are some autistic qualities to Michael. And 
And one of those things is, is like this Rain Man kind of memory, Annie. He's always kind of fixated on cars and lawnmowers and that kind of thing. And so he would he would get to know people um, by what they drive. So you introduce. That's yourself. the first thing he asked me. I remember he's like, yeah, OK, what car do you drive? I was like, <laughs> but he said, what car did you drive here? I was like, uh, OK. That's <laughs> and he wants oh, yeah, the car. And he car. wants details, <laughs> leather interior. And does it have it a sure did. and that kind of thing? So it sure did. So there have been times where Michael and I were at the mall. And somebody would come up, you know, like a teacher from seven years earlier, you know, from a special needs class and say, Michael, do you remember me? He's, and he'd say, Chrysler Town and Country Van, blue. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And she says, yeah, I still have that thing. And, and so he's, he's very valuable. A lot of times when I see somebody coming my way and I'm like, geez, I don't remember who this guy is. He's, his name is Chuck, drives a Mazda. Okay, good, thanks. <laughs> so uh, it's like it's, it, he, has an, he has these amazing endearing qualities to him and it's been a, it's just wonderful, a wonderful spirit. People talk about us and what we possibly have meant to him in his 31 years, but we all tell folks that he's done more for us than we've done for him. So you adopted him 28 years ago, would that have been? Yeah. Yeah, back in 1991, and uh, when he was almost three, and then uh, we adopted Carmen from Paraguay two years after that, and then and then Cheryl and I, when we were uh, both in our 50s, adopted uh, two more girls out of foster care in Cleveland. That was because, and look, my wife's awesome. Cheryl is, you know, I've told people I'm a sportscaster. My wife's a world changer. You know, she she worked for many years with addicts. Uh, and help them overcome that. And then she devoted her life to child sex trafficking and was the CEO of a group called Street Grace in Atlanta. And basically her work there, she had told me one day, she said, you know what? A lot of, a lot of kids, when they age out of the foster care system, they fall victim to this because nobody's ever cared for them. And they will latch onto the first person who says that they care, you know, and a lot of times for, you know, for young girls, it's like, Somebody pays attention and says, you're beautiful and I'll take care of you. And suddenly they're there. They fall into this. And it'd be great to, you know, adopt somebody who's about that age and keep them out of that. We we wound up adopting two half sisters who are now 18 and 19 years old. And yeah, I look, I outkicked my coverage long ago when I married Cheryl because it taught me a lot uh, and, and taught me to look outside of what I'm doing for a living and to, into how we can make the world a better place. And she's always gotten that. When was it kind of on your heart that you were meant to adopt? Not one, not two, but four kids. The first, when she came up with the idea the first time, so we had two kids, you know, we had Eric and Maggie and, you know, we had, this was the perfect script. You know, you got a, a great wife, a great job. You got two kids, a boy and a girl, you know, why mess with the script? And then, and she had seen uh, the ABC 2020 feature on uh, these Romanian orphans back in, uh, 1990, 91. And these kids were just being warehoused, you know, and they were forgotten. And especially if, especially if you had any kind of a deformity or any kind of a disability and they were just forgotten. And she's like, I came home from work one day. I, I still remember I came home from work and she said, you know what we need to do? And I was like, chicken or fish, whatever. whatever. <laughs> and she says, no, and she says, no, I think we need to go to Romania and get one of these kids. And I was like, wow that you're serious. And, and, and as it turns out, you know, we talked to a group that had been there a couple of times, they told us what it was like. 
And, um, and so I stayed home with Eric and Maggie and she went over there with a group and we had no idea what was going to happen. You know, it wasn't like we went over there with a picture of a child or paperwork that said, pick, you know, go to this place and pick this child up. You know, we just, she just went. And the first child they brought out was this little blonde haired boy who was almost three and couldn't speak and couldn't walk. And she called me. I was in the studio in Atlanta at TNT and, and we talked on the phone. She was in Bucharest. I was in Atlanta. And she said, I've met a little boy and he's so much more than we can care for. We just can't handle it. But she said, but I just don't know what I'll do if if, uh, if I'm wondering for the rest of my life what happened to that kid in that orphanage in Romania. I said, well, bring him home. and. She did. And that started our, I think, wow. I think the whole adoption, the adoption for us has always just been like, everybody deserves a chance and everybody doesn't have to, have to play by the same rules. And, and, and there's value in everybody. Let's not let the way somebody was born or, or their upbringing or neglect or any of the, that impact their future for the rest of their lives. Let's see if we can help somebody have another chance. And so I think that's kind of been the way we've looked at it. And man, the greatest thing, one of the greatest things about the whole thing is to watch how the two kids, our two biological kids, Eric and Maggie immediately accepted these kids just as, Hey, here's my new brother. Here's my new sister. Oh, another new brother and a sister. So that's been the great thing about it is that, uh, you know, it's given them a realization that it's not all, you know, happy meals and toys are us. There are a lot of kids who grow up in really tough conditions and they, they're just yeah. looking for another chance. Wow. Well, what you're doing is amazing. I'm sure that you know that and your kids know that too. So I can't imagine, but I think it's really great. And I praise what you're doing. I'm sure Vince with his kids. Yeah. But I was going to say it's amazing because, you know, he tells it to the story and he talks about them and, and, and then you hear about it, but getting to see that up close as, as he talks about, it, it's not like he's painting this picture. It's just, it is what it is. And it was just a great vibe, great family. Everybody gets along. It was just easy and fun to be around them. And I didn't know them at all. It was just fun getting to know everybody there that day, just sitting there. We could have sat there for hours, just talking. Everybody's telling stories, his kids, grandkids, the water balloon throwing each other. I mean, it was just, a, it's a good time. You know, it, just, it was cool. It was great to be around. And Vince, Cheryl still talks about that day too, you know, because, you know, it was, you know, it was last year, right about this time or a little before this. And, and she's like, man, it was such, that was such fun. And Chris Weber and Vince and these guys are so nice. It's like they're regular guys. I said, they're regular guys who have this, you know, unnatural ability to play sports, you know, and, but, their dads and their husbands, their people who have stuff going on, just like we all have stuff going on. But man, it was just rich to hang out on the patio that day on a beautiful day and just kind of hang out. That's pretty cool. Yeah. And that's why I asked. I said, hey, let me know. Make sure I want to come back. I want to do it again because it was just fun. And it's, it's what we consider easy. I want to ask you, Vince's neighbor, as he calls him, Shaq, and your co-host, over my, I think, three years of doing this, I've heard a lot of good Shaq stories. My favorite was Grant Hill said once he showed up somewhere, a practice or something with no clothes on except for socks and shoes. Oh, uh, <laughs> yes. Well, I mean, the one on TV that, that I always remember about Shaq is the night we were doing the highlights on the postgame show of the Golden State game and Hulk Hogan had started the the highlights he was they did a sound full thing where he was saying oakland are you ready you know and this kind of thing so i said so let's go to oakland for the highlights and Shaq, 
as we're live, says, how come you keep saying Oakland? I said, because that's where they're playing the game. He said, I had no idea that they played in Oakland. And at that point, Chuck jumps in. It's like, what are you talking about? And Kenny's jumping in. He says, we, did, we always stayed in San Francisco. I just got on the bus. I didn't know where we were going. <laughs> so he thought for his career that the Warriors played in San Francisco. Oh. And see, those are the things you can't predict in a, in a production meeting. You, know, you can't say, okay, in the third segment, uh, Shaq will say this about the Warriors and we'll spend the rest of the show ripping him. You know, it's like, <laughs> it, was, it was unbelievable. I think the thing that's been so fun about the show through the years is that nobody is above being made fun of. And I think that's what makes it happen because a lot of times if you take a guy like Chuck or Shaq or Kenny, you know, you know, if you take a, a Chuck or a Shaq who is a top 50 player in a Hall of Fame, you know, there are going to be, there are going to be guys out there Annie and Vince, who say, I'll do this about anything, but you can't make fun of me. You know, in Ch in Chuck's first two years, we used to weigh him on our show. Right. We used to make it because, because his first year, he was spilling out over the edge of the set. He was so big. <laughs> you know, we were like, geez, Chuck, how much do you weigh? I'm going, you know, don't you worry about it. I'm going to get down to my playing weight. And so we said, okay, good. So then we start weighing him. Can you imagine how many players out there, Vince, would say? Couldn't take that. Oh, yeah. no way. You can't do that to me. Right. And, but right. He, he never had a problem with it. So and eventually he got under his playing weight. But it's, it's been the same way with, with everybody there. It's like we all take shots at each other. If you got a thin skin, you're on the wrong show. I think Shaq's biggest thing when he, when he started was he had watched the show for so long. He wanted to be part of the fun stuff that we always did. And then that's all he wanted to do at the beginning, you know? So he, you know, he'd look at me and he'd say, it'd, it'd be really funny if uh, you tase me, you know, it's like, we don't need to, you know, I said, a lot of the funny stuff that happens is just organic. organic. It's just like yeah. you're saying, I didn't know they played in Oakland, in Oakland. You know, that's hilarious. I said, <laughs> right. but we don't have to tase you or he said, I've been to stunt school. You can set me on fire. And it's like, <laughs> you, know, Kenny and, you know, Kenny and Chuck, and we all were kind of like, hey, Shaq, you don't have to force it. It's going to get, you know, things are going to be funny. Don't, don't feel like you got to do that. And I think that's, you know, that's part of the learning curve when you get on our show, because so much of what we do is fun and people laugh at it. Sometimes you say, well, did these guys ever talk basketball or break things down? Yeah, yeah, we do. And, and those guys have been in every situation possible. So there's not going to be anything that comes up in a game they haven't been part of. And um, the night that Kenny tried to duplicate Kobe's... Uh, jumping over the car, yeah. Jumping over the yeah, Aston that was Martin. Great. Yeah, and, and then I wound up that, you know, he jumped over what he thought was going to be a car. And then I told the producer, I said, you know, who's driving the car? And they said, we're somebody in the production crew. I said, no, shoot me driving the car. So it'll be... You know, not only does Kenny not jump over the car, he gets run over by the guy who does the show with, you know, so, and, and, and the funny and the great thing about that was Kobe was on the show that night, watching it with us right. for the first time. And in, in moments like that are just, you know, you, you just, you sit back sometimes and you say, have a job you get to do, not a job you got to do. You know, it's like, mm -hmm. it's, it's like you're not even working at all. I've been impressed and admired the, the way that you've been able to like, because of the back and forth and you, you're trying to bring order to the table when you're actually trying to deliver the actual game, 
you've been able to do that. Like how tough has it been? I mean, I'm sure it's second nature for you now and everybody kind of, you know, like the back of your hand, but in the beginning, how were you bring order to this table <laughs> when I'm trying to read my lines? Fibs, don't think for a second that because I've been doing it this long, that that ever gets to be second nature because it's, it, it, some nights it's, some nights it's just maddening. And Annie, it's like, you know, you're trying to do highlights. Okay. And you got these three guys who are working with you and you've got, like this three-page shot sheet, a minute and a half of highlights, and you haven't you haven't seen the highlights yet. And you're just trying you're trying to make sure everything matches up as you go. And at this, you know, and you're writing you're like, okay, you got a little bit of a rhythm going. You're three shots in, and then Shaq says, "I got a question for the panel." You know, <laughs> you think <laughs> you think Mike Conley is a top ten point guard, and then I have to in the middle of these highlights as they're going, I'm saying, Shaq, can we talk about that after the highlights? Well, I'm sorry. <laughs> and then we keep, you know, we keep going, but it's one of those things. And it, what's funny is that we had this, this, these players only nights uh, for a couple of years where C mm-hmm. Webb and Shaq were working and, you know, guys who didn't play like me, we had the night off, which is fine. But, but Shaq would come to me on that Thursday before we do our regular show. And he said, man, it's hard when everybody's talking. <laughs> I said, "Yeah." I said, you now, you get, "Now you get an idea on that." And so, what happens on the post game show that night? Shaq's doing the exact same thing. He's, you know, he's interrupting stuff. And I was like, "I said, you just told me a few hours ago how you appreciated how difficult that is." And what's the first thing you do? I jump in and ask a question. Yes, exactly. Yes. <laughs> no, but those guys are great. And that's what makes it so much fun. And that's what makes it so much of a, of a non-traditional sports show is that, you know, we may show highlights. And if it's a bad game, Kenny is sitting there doing the Harlem Globetrotters theme the whole way through. Chuck is saying, why do we have to watch this trash? You know, and I'm the one kind of saying, oh, and this jumper made it a 42-point game, you know, so... That's what makes it fun. That's what makes it feel like four guys just sitting on a couch watching a game and nobody's taking, nobody's, you know, asking for permission to talk. We're just kind of letting it fly. That's one of the things, like like you said, and Vince was saying that we love about the show is it's so natural and organic. And I think it makes it better than any other, you know, pregame, postgame show is that, you know, it's just a bunch of friends hanging out and you're going to make fun of each other and you're going to laugh. We're not just talking about highlights and MVP and all that. So because it's relatable. It's relatable. Right. Like right. when you hang with your boys, you you have the you, you sit around the house or outside or whatever. And like you said, you go at each other when it's a funny moment. And now it's like you're seeing what happens in your living room with your your friends now on TV. And it's just it's just fun to watch. No. And, and, and the thing about that is like when you're hanging out with your boys, it's like nobody says, OK, you say this and then you laugh about it. Then I'll say this. You laugh. You say this. But there are some shows that you can watch where it is kind of scripted that much where you can say, these guys have run through this four times before they're on the air. That guy knew when to talk exactly. He knew exactly what he was going to say. But for us, it's like, I got no idea what anybody's going to say when we start that show out. And that's, you know, and, you, and we don't rehearse it. And so that's, and that's the thing that's, that's great. And, and I remember when we started doing March Madness with our guys at CBS, and they were like, okay, let's rehearse the first segment. Chuck was like, huh? He said, let's rehearse the first segment. And okay, we'll do it. You know, so we start rehearsing, but nobody's saying anything. It's like, uh, Chuck, yeah, 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 I'll say something. And Kenny's, yeah, 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 I'll say something. And that's, and that's the way we want it to be. We don't want anybody armed. We don't want anybody to say, 
okay, so that's what you're going to say. Okay, good. Then I'll then I'll formulate what I'm going to say. Now we just want it to be gut level, you know. Whatever's, you know, whatever the other guy says. Hey, what's your honest reaction to it? Not your rehearsed reaction to it. Welcome to the league. We have a segment on our show called Welcome to the League, where our guest tells us the moment that they realized they made it, whether good or bad, or a time when you realized, you know, you're sitting next to, maybe it wasn't Shaq, and you're like, wow, I'm, I'm really here. I think the first time I interviewed Pat Riley was one of those welcome to the game moments, and Chuck Daly as well. Because these guys, when I, when I started out at Turner, and, and again, I'd been, I'd been in the business for 10 years up before, you know, up until then in, on local TV. When I started out at TNT, I didn't know a lot of these guys aside from just seeing them on the sidelines or seeing, you know, it's, well, the only time I've seen Chuck Daly, he was screaming about somebody and, you know, looking real nice, but, but it was yelling. And I was amazed always at how gracious and what a nice man like Chuck Daly was. And, and in the same like with Kevin McHale, when we were making our pitch to get Kevin McHale to join us, I was like, I, all I've seen is Kevin playing with, you know, with those Celtic teams, Kurt Rambis and all that other stuff. And I said, well, I wonder what kind of guys these are. And then when you sit there and come down from your hotel room in Minneapolis, when you're doing the PGA championship and have breakfast with your executive producer and Kevin McHale, and you're sitting there eating oatmeal with the guy, it's like, He's just a normal dude. You know, I said, it'd be wonderful to have you working with us. So I think, I think that's one of the things that, that sticks out the most is that you, you, you see all these guys and you see them in the glare of the spotlight and you think that, well, they must not be like us at all. But then it, it turns out that they really are. They're just like, they're like us, you know, they're doing what they do best. We're kind of doing what what we've been gifted to do. And I think, I think that's kind of, that's kind of the thing. (laughs) That's awesome. And that is another edition of the winging it podcast. Thank you so much to Ernie Johnson for coming on the show. We had such a great time. Don't forget to give us five stars. Yeah. Five stars. We need that. (laughs) We need that. that. And mention us on Twitter. You know us. I'm Annie Finberg. That's Vince Carter. Let us know who you want to hear from, and we will talk to you next time. Mm -hmm.